morning. It's awesome to hang out with you, and good morning to all of you joining us online. Uh, it's our privilege that you're joining us today. I have to be honest, I miss you guys a ton. Can't wait for the day that we can all get together and see each other again. You know, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling The King. And in this series, we're taking a look at the life of Jesus as told to us by one of his disciples, by one of his friends named Matthew. It was the first time I ever heard this, but at the beginning of this series, Charles gave us a guarantee. He gave us a guarantee in this series, and he said this, if we can get to the point where we understand the principles of this book of Matthew, and we live out the principles as well, we will not only be better, our world will be better. That's a pretty uh, bold guarantee from Charles, and I want you to know that I stand behind that guarantee. The truth of the matter is, is that we're at a point in our lives, we're at a point in our culture, that if we can just stare at Jesus and understand the principles that we learn from his life, his death, and his resurrection, and apply those principles into our lives, not only will God impact our lives and change us, but we will then go and impact the lives of others and our world will be changed. And so I think that is the mindset we need to have when we're looking at these stories of Matthew, and I want to see if we can just maybe peel apart some of those principles again today as we take a look at this kind of different kind of story, this interesting story today in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like one, please let us know. You can let us know after service. You can email us. You can call us on the phone. We want to get you a Bible. We believe that the Bible is filled with life-changing truth. And so if you don't have one, we want to get one to you. But we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is a different kind of story, right? It's interesting. We got this kind of showdown happening in the wilderness. And there's something about the beginning of it that kind of was a little different for me, a little awkward for me, actually. I kind of wrestled with it at first. It says that the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted. And, and the reason that that bothered me a little bit is because the word tempted, as we understand it, has this negative connotation to it. And I didn't really kind of understand what was happening here. So I dug in a little bit. And what I learned is, is that this word really has 
dual meanings to it. Yeah, it does mean tempted, but it also means more often than not to be tested, a test. You see, this passage is about the test of the king. Jesus is put to the test. When I was young, I used to go to church and I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor of the church I went to and there was other pastors there as well. And I remember listening one day to one of those pastors as he was preaching and he was talking about when he was a kid. When he was a kid, his grandfather was a builder. Now in New York, you don't build out buildings wide, you build them high. And so he would build these buildings that would be several stories high in the air. So one day he has uh, this, this pastor of mine come over uh, to the work site and he brought his twin brother who was also the same age because they're twins and that's what you do. And so they brought him to the, to the construction site. I'm not exactly sure what kind of labor laws or safety things were around back then, but he brings him there and he has these two cinder blocks set up. And so he gets this plank of wood, this long plank of wood, and he, he lifts it up and he puts it onto one side of the cinder block. He puts it on that cinder block and he walks over and he lifts it up and he puts it onto the other one. And he tells his two 10 or 11 year old uh, grandsons to start jumping on the plank as hard as they could. And so they're jumping and they're jumping for a few minutes. And then he comes and he, and he lifts the plank up and he tells them they got off first, but he lifts the plank up and he begins to inspect it and look at it and everything. And then he takes it away and he puts another plank and he says, jump on this one. Finally, after that happened a few times, the grandson looked at the grandfather and was like, what are we doing? What is going on? And he said, well, you see, here's the deal. You're jumping on this as hard as you can. I'm taking the wood and I'm looking to see if there's any cracks, if there's any signs of any weakness or anything like that. Because if this plank can hold you a couple of inches from the ground, then I know that it will be able to hold hundreds of feet when we go take some workers up to there, up in the sky. And so what happened at that moment was that this plank was putting put to the test so that it could be seen if it could actually hold up at a later time under a much more stressful moment. But here's the deal about the test. The test did not make the plank stronger. The test only revealed the plank's strength. In the wilderness, Jesus' identity and mission is revealed. The test that he goes through reveals who he is and what he has to do. And the way that it reveals this, the way that it reveals who his identity and mission is, as Jesus goes through this test, is this. Jesus passes the test that others failed. Jesus passes the test that others failed. And the reality is, is that all of us, all of humanity would fail this test, except for Jesus. But Jesus passes the test that others specifically in the Bible failed. As we look at the setting of these tests, we get uh, these glimpses of these other settings. We get glimpses of, of uh, humanity's first failure in the garden. We get glimpses of, of the failures of Israel as they wander in the desert for 40 years uh, under the leadership of Moses. These tests give us echoes of the, of the tests that Adam went through and that Israel went through and that Moses went through. Jesus passes the tests that others failed. 
Let me give you one example of that, just so that you can kind of see where I'm coming from with that, and you, and you don't kind of be like, where, where he's, let me give you one example of that. In the first test, it's kind of weird, right? Jesus is hungry, and, and, um, and the tempter comes, and he goes, see these rocks? They look kind of delicious, don't they? Kind of tasty. Why don't you turn these rocks into bread? And the way that Jesus responds is he quotes scripture. He quotes from God's word, and he says, man does not live by bread alone. Where is that from? Where is Jesus quoting from? He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is God speaking to his people, uh, Israel. He says this, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you see the setting of where this comes? Do you see the setting of the story? What happens? God leads his people into the wilderness for 40 years for what? To humble and test them. The setting is a test. Where Jesus passes this test and his identity and mission are revealed, Israel, years before, fails the test and instead reveals the need for a Savior, the need for Jesus. You see, the test wasn't about bread. The test was about submission to God's will, obedience to God's will, following the commands of God, and Jesus perfectly obeys and submits to the commands of the Father. And in each test, that's exactly what happens. If we were to take the test and kind of outline them and kind of look at what was going on, we would see that each time what is going on is that the tempter is actually trying to take the mission that Jesus is on and actually twist it. Twist it just a little bit. With the bread, he takes the test and he tries to make the mission of Jesus a material one. A material one that satisfies the physical hunger, the physical needs of humanity. In the second one, he tries to take the mission and make it a social one. He takes them up to this high point and tells them to jump. And what we hear are echoes of the cries of humanity throughout time, cries to God saying, if you're God, prove yourself. Prove what you are and who you are. And if Jesus had done that, yes, he would have revealed who he was, but not in the way God intended And in the final one, we have first this this physical mission temptation. We have this social mission temptation. And then in the third one, we have this political mission that, that is trying to be twisted. What does Satan do? He says, I'll give you it all. You know this outcome that you're trying to do? All these people you're trying to get to yourself? I'll give it to you all. Just let's have a little political alliance here. Why don't you worship me and it's all this will be yours. And so he tries to twist the mission. 
But Jesus refuses because Jesus understood it wasn't just about the outcome of the mission. What mattered was also how the mission occurred. It was to follow the mission according to God the Father's standards. You see, God called Jesus to a self-sacrificing mission, an others-focused mission. If you look through the miracles that that um, that the tempter tries to get Jesus to do, and then you look through all of the miracles that Jesus does in his life, what you're struck by is that in these temptations, in these tests, the, the point of them is for Jesus to do something for his own personal gain. But if you look throughout the life of Jesus, you'll see that all the time as he goes and does his miracles, they are for the benefit of others. Jesus was called to be the suffering king, the self-suffering king, the others-focused king. And each of these tests, what do they reveal to us about Jesus? They show us that Jesus refuses to go outside of the will of God. He refuses to accomplish the mission outside of God's desires. He is the true king, and the king will not compromise his mission. See, Jesus is put to the test. And in this test, his identity and mission are revealed. And they are revealed in the fact that Jesus passes the test that others fail. And as we take a look at that, we will learn that then later, Jesus passes the greatest test. Later, Jesus passes the greatest test. Remember that story of, of the planks of wood and remember the purpose of that test. I said that if that wood would hold up when it was just a couple of inches from the ground, it revealed that it could pass the test of being able to hold up hundreds of feet into the air. Jesus passes this test in the wilderness and then later passes the greatest test. There's a phrase that the tempter uses over and over in the wilderness, more than once he uses it in the wilderness, as he's trying to put Jesus to the test. The phrase is this, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, this is the challenge. This is, is, a, is a statement worn on the t-shirt as they enter into the battle. If you are the Son of God. Jesus hears this challenge at another point in the book of Matthew. He hears the very same challenge at a later time. Let's look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. We're going to read about when Jesus was on the cross. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. 
In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus refuses to come down off the cross. And in so doing, passes the greatest test of all. And in this victory, he cements his identity and his mission. And then what does he do? What does he do? He offers us his test score. He replaces our test score with his. Jesus replaces our test score. And in order to understand how huge that replacement is, I think we need to understand a little bit about the test. You see, oftentimes we seem to operate, operate in a way that we make this test one of, uh, that's based on a scoring grid. And so we look at others and we're like, well, I'm, I'm kind of doing a little bit better than, than that person. Or we look at someone else and we're like, well, I'm not doing as good as them. And, and based on whether we are, are doing as well as someone or doing better than someone or not doing as well as someone or not doing better than someone, we kind of make this sense of worth about not just ourselves, but about others. And we make this assessment of value. The reality is this. The test is not based on scoring. It's a pass or fail. It's a pass or fail. And the reality is this. Everyone fails. Everyone fails. You, me, all of humanity, we all fail. All of us, except for Jesus. Jesus got a perfect score. He got a perfect score. And Jesus replaces our failed score, our score of fail, with that perfect score. You see, we need to understand that the result of our failure, the result of the test that we failed, is death. The result of our failure, the result of our test score is condemnation. It's actually God's wrath. It's eternal separation from God. It's a very real consequence of hell. This is the result of you and me and all of humanity's test scores. And this is how we enter into the story. But God wasn't okay leaving us there. God wasn't okay with leaving us at that point. And so Jesus offers us his test score. And in order to receive that perfect score, we need to do something that we have said over and over in this series. Charles talked about it first. I talked about it. And then Charles talked about it again. We use this word. We need to repent. And repent is simply turning. We turn from our own will, our own desires, our own goals, our own life of being in charge and the one in control, and we turn to the king. And we submit to his rule, to his control, to the life that he gives us. There's a need for repentance. There is a need for repentance. You see, accepting the perfect score of Jesus means accepting the identity and mission of Jesus. If you're going to accept the perfect score of Jesus, you need to accept his identity and his mission. And so, how do we do that? 
how do, how do, how do we start that up? Maybe you, you've never done that. You kind of figure, like this is new to you, and you kind of, how do how do we do that? Well, it starts by admitting our score. It starts admitting that we're not perfect. In fact, I don't know about you. Actually, I do because of all of humanity, but I'll tell you about me, okay? I'm a failure. We've all failed. The first step is to admit our score. And we need to believe that Jesus is the only one who has the perfect score and the only solution to our score of failure. And we need to accept his test results and in so doing, claim him as Lord and Savior. And when we do that, we accept the identity and mission of Jesus. I said earlier, maybe this is new to you. Maybe this is something that you've never heard of or you're kind of wrestling with. Uh, and you're like, well, what, what does that look like? like kind of, what, what does it look like in person? Well, I'll give you an example of it. I'll give you an example. It's really just talking to God. We call that prayer. I'll give you an example of what that might look like. And the truth of the matter is, is that you wanted to make that decision to accept the identity and mission of Jesus and then accept his perfect score. You could do that even now. But what I need you to understand is not about the words that I say. It's not some sort of magic words. It's really a decision of the heart. And it could go with something as simple as this. Jesus, I'm sorry for the way I screwed up and messed up and for the failed test in my life. I acknowledge that you're the only one and the only way that my scores can be changed, the only way I can be forgiven. I choose you as Lord and Savior. Amen. And if you pray that, if you talk to Jesus and ask him that, Jesus will answer that prayer. In fact, he loves answering that prayer. The truth of the matter is this. Jesus passes a test that we could never pass. We could never pass that test. And even though we failed the test, he offers us his perfect score. And when we accept his perfect score, we accept the identity and mission of Jesus. Let's go back to those three tests, just so that we understand a little bit of what that means. Our mission is not a material one. It's not focused on our own personal gains or our own personal comforts. Our mission isn't a social one. It isn't focused on making ourselves look better, look a certain way, or fit into a certain group. And it definitely isn't a political one. It is not one that is focused on ourselves, but instead is a self-sacrificing one, a one that is others-focused. Let's live out that mission, Calvary Church. Let's live out the mission that Jesus started. And as we connect with God and he impacts our lives, let us go and connect with others and impact the lives of others. And then let us stand back and watch as God changes lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love. And Lord, I ask you that as we wrestle with what all of this means to us individually, 
you would begin to change our hearts. And as you change our hearts, let us come back collectively together. And that you would change our church. Lord, you've done great things through the people of Calvary Church, through the people of your church as a whole. But Lord, we know that you have something in store. And it begins with us turning to you. Lord, if there's anyone who decided to kind of wrestle with that and make that decision to follow Jesus, we ask you that you would hold on to them and that you would just bless them. As we go forward today, we ask you that you would help us to live out your mission, self-sacrificing and focused on others as we bring glory to your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.